Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. You know, it's so interesting. We've found that people are starved for experiences of art. That's Nina Diefenbach, Senior Vice President, Deputy Director for Advancement at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia. She leads the Foundation's Advancement Program and is responsible for a $100 million capital campaign to enhance educational programs and community engagement initiatives, support operations, and strengthen the endowment. She oversees the fundraising, membership, and public relations teams, working to maximize and expand the institution's public profile. She came to the Barnes in 2016 after a more than three-decade-long tenure at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where she rose to the position of Vice President for Institutional Advancement in 2004. She holds an MA in Arts Management from New York University and a BA from Trinity College. Hi, Nina. Welcome to Artscoping. Hello, Max. How are you? I am great. I'm especially glad to have you on the podcast because we can acknowledge something. We overlapped at the Met and in my case, for less than a decade as a grad student and then a curator. But you were there for, I don't remember how many presidential administrations. So what was it like <laughs> to change horses after 34 years and head to the barns? You know, it's been great. I adored my time at the Met. And it was very hard to ever think about leaving, certainly when you've been there for 34 years. Every part of that institution was deeply part of my fiber. And I had so many friendships, and it's just such an extraordinary institution. But I think that change is good. I really was seeking another life adventure. My children were out of the house, and I just thought, you know, my husband and I were like, there has to be another life adventure in it for us. And so I very slowly started looking around. I am from Philadelphia. I grew up here. And I saw this job at the Barnes. I met the director and president of the Barnes, Tom Collins, and I immediately was excited about what was going to happen, what he was trying to do at the Barnes. Just a reminder, the Barnes moved into Center City, Philadelphia in 2012 and opened in the Todd Williams and Billy Chen building there preserving its permanent collection in exactly the same way that it was housed out in its original campus out in Marion, which was mm -hmm. Dr. Barnes's house. And all of that installation is mimicked. But we did open in 2012. And essentially, the Barnes is equivalent to a startup. There are a lot of things about the Barnes and structures that you and I working at bigger institutions were more familiar with that mm. the Barnes had not yet gotten to. And so it's been wonderful to come to the Barnes, to come to a nimble, flexible institution that's eager for professionalizing itself in every way. And so I've really been able to apply many of the best practices that I learned at the Met to the institution at the Barnes, and it's been fabulous. And of course, some of those practices were going to any address in Manhattan and opening your purse and people would dump it filled with Benjamins or Tubmans. <laughs> I'm guessing it's different where you are in that the calling card is so important to Philadelphia and so important for art lovers, but it's a different ask, isn't it? Well, in a way and in a way not. I mean, in many ways, it's not. I think that the excellence of the collection 
is absolutely on par with the Metropolitan Museum. It's just that we have a narrower focus. Dr. Barnes very much focused on Impressionist and post-Impressionist art. There, Of course, there is Native American art, there's Asian art, there's old masters, other fields of art included in the collection, but it's truly at the highest standards. Its excellence is in the Impressionist and post-Impressionist collections. And so in that vein, asking to support some of the best of human achievement in a given period of time is exactly the same ask as anything that was happening at the Met. And I think that the difference is simply learning geographically how Philadelphians and this tri-state area, as opposed to Manhattan and that tri-state area, how they respond and support their arts and cultural institutions in the quote-unquote neighborhood. And it's actually very similar. In the last year, Nina, it's been harder, I'm sure, because you haven't been able to see people in casual contexts as easily or Mm -hmm. in most contexts at all. So how has that changed your approach to bringing people to support the foundation? Well, I think one of the things that Tom Collins has felt very strongly about, and I think that by virtue of being in a new building and our ability to invest in technology and all of the AV and IT basics that for bigger institutions has an enormous cost associated with it. The Barnes has always been very focused on its technology. And so when we came into the pandemic, we really immediately embraced our digital tools and quickly pivoted to include things like Barnes Takeout, which is a program where our curators and educators would take a work of art and for 10 minutes or five minutes talk about that one work of art. They would be doing it from their home on their iPhone and we have it uploaded onto our YouTube channel and it would be delivered to people who were made aware of it. We did that within the first nine days after closing our doors on March 13. And so that kind of quick pivot blossomed into other kinds of digital platforms and tools, including other digital offerings such as virtual tours, online classes, virtual lectures, etc. How does that touch the hearts of a donor who is used to coming to events and for whom the physical experience of mingling and being in the presence of great art hasn't been there? Because for many of them, I'm assuming the digital tools are interesting, but maybe not right to the heart of their interests. You know, it's so interesting. We've found that people are starved for experiences of art. And I think that with so many people sitting at home, that they really were looking for ways to truly divert themselves and think about human achievements over many decades and periods of time, and I think this is, I'm really speaking on behalf of all art museums, that they felt strongly that they needed to have this connection. And we have not seen resistance at all. In fact, since you're speaking directly about fundraising, the Barnes Art Ball, which is our annual fundraiser, we had to do the entire thing virtually. It was a wonderful way for us to engage local Philadelphia artists. We solicited Philadelphia artists to submit 30-second videos to us talking about their art, talking about how they were feeling perhaps during COVID or reacting to the Barnes collection, or frankly, anything that they wanted to talk about that felt relevant at the time. 
We had other people participate and submit videos. We had chat rooms, cocktail chat rooms included within the body of the event. And it was a one hour program. And it was immensely successful. People enjoyed it so much. People got to see each other, got to see friends. And we raised a half a million dollars for Mm -hmm. an entirely virtual program. Part of what's interesting about that and about other digital initiatives is the voice that you've given to artists. It's a pivot for the Barnes, which has traditionally been an amalgam of progressive thinking about the arts and education with a very conventional museological imperative. And I think for most museums, that's been what's interesting, the opening up of authority. And it's led to questions about that authority. Much in the news over the last couple of years is the singling out of donors whose wealth was accumulated through questionable or unsavory sources. How are you handling this topic and what's being said among your peers? It's been a certainly a challenging issue for many nonprofits. I, I don't think it's only museums. And I can tell you in terms of the barns, we only have 15 trustees. We look carefully at who is a, a citizen in the city of Philadelphia who has contributed to the longstanding relationship and connections that they've had to the barns itself, because many of the trustees there have been so integral to taking the barns from a vision and an idea of moving it into Center City and actually getting it into Center City. So these are people who are deeply ingrained in the educational and cultural community of Philadelphia and the area. And so we have not encountered some of the challenges that some of the other institutions have. In fact, quite to the contrary, we really have an exemplary group of trustees. They have a vision they want to lead and make Dr. Barnes's collection as accessible as possible. And do remember that the Barnes was founded in 1922. So we're coming up on our 100 year anniversary. And it has absolutely, without a doubt, had very different phases of its life during those 100 years. And we're now in the phase where we're truly opening it up and allowing as many people as possible to learn and know about this collection. And be educated uh, in the methods of Dr. Barnes, as well as in art history generally, mm-hmm. as well as civilization generally. Nina, the pandemic has really muddied the waters in the world of arts philanthropy because museums made such a virtue of escalating attendance. And now, at best, we're seeing restrictions on the number of visitors, and at worst, a lot of museums remain closed. I'm wondering what the messages are you're sharing with donors since you've reopened, I gather, four days a week in January. Just one correction. We did reopen actually in July, and we were open from July until the middle of November when the city of Philadelphia then um, had cultural institutions and other other things, restaurants included, close again for another six weeks, and then we reopened in January. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I would say that We've had the most extraordinary group of loyal donors to the institution. And it's a really a true testament to the philanthropic community in the Philadelphia area that the Barnes has had a very solid base of support, not only financially, which of course is critical, but spiritually. The two go together. Mm-hmm. And we've had many exciting exhibitions that we've been able to put on, which is rather extraordinary, so that we 
We've had two exhibitions up, which I think people were extremely happy to be able to come to. But also we're perceived as a safe place. And I think museums have done a very good job generally Mm -hmm. in conveying that they are, in fact, a safe place to visit. And as long as that happens, and as long as we keep to our quotas and our 25% capacity and all that, I think that we're going to continue to have a very solid group of people who want to see museums and see them as a very safe alternative, given the amount of restrictions we all are dealing with in this pandemic. Attendance was a big deal, of course, at the Met and so many other institutions. Is it something that you obsess about or is it something that you monitor with interest? How would you, on the sliding scale, how important is it for you is the proof of concept of the Barnes? It's important. It for sure is important. But as you know from visiting the Barnes, the galleries themselves, the permanent collection, are actually relatively small rooms. And so there's only a maximum amount of capacity we can have in those galleries. And so we have a ceiling, unlike the Met, which seems to absorb everybody. Um, we have a ceiling of we, which we can't go much over. And we, we hit that almost every year. Uh, and in those early years, when we first opened in 2012, when the, the demand was very high, there were people having to wait in line for a long time or plan well in advance, etc. cetera. Uh, we don't have that now, uh, but it's, so I think that obviously attendance is terribly important because it's also an earned revenue source. Um, and we're very grateful to those visitors, uh, but, and to the members who come and con- or visitors who convert to be members, but overall, uh, I, we, we look at other measurement tools. Um, it's not just attendance. We're never going to be like the Met or the Louvre on any of those top attendance lists, and we don't pretend to want to be. So, yeah. You mentioned that you give online classes, so that's another way of reaching people. What's behind that? How does that work? Well, we have um, a very robust program of, of online classes that we run Everything from 14-week courses to four-week courses. And during the pandemic, we actually increased the number of online classes to the four-week classes to really provide another alternative way for people to stay involved with the institution. Prior to the pandemic, we were very much tied to the idea that people wanted to come to the collection and have the classes in the building, which of course then restricted the number of people who could actually attend. And what the virtual setting has done, it's really helped us expand everything from, Mm -hmm. we're now offering 46 new classes. We've had more than 2,800 people joining classes from April through December of 2020 from 39 states and six countries, and Mm -hmm. 10% of those students have received full scholarships to attend. So, and 60% of our enrollment last year were students who had never taken a Barnes class before, you know, which Mm -hmm. is really remarkable. Mm -hmm. And so there is no question that, you know, in this pandemic, you look for a silver lining And uh, I think a silver lining in all this is the commitment that we are going to take into our future to having to virtual programming. And there's no question we're going to continue to offer virtual classes 
going forward because, I mean, as well as having people come and take classes on site, but we, to have that kind of reach for an institution like ours is just extraordinary. And we're thrilled, absolutely thrilled with all these new friends. And that type of reach and engagement does, I assume, also touch local audiences to a very great extent. That said, a lot of your visitors, I'm sure, are from out of town and with empty hotel rooms last year and still. What proportion of your audience comes from out of town and how are you focusing differently in addition to classrooms to getting local audiences to participate? Well, you're correct. You know, Philadelphia is typically a major tourist destination for both international and domestic travelers. I mean, don't forget our founding fathers having been uh, rooted here. There are a lot of national visitors. And however, we've, during the pandemic, you know, we have seen those visitors during this time and all the restrictions on travel. We have seen people from Philadelphia and the region or drivable locations like New York and Washington. And all through this, we've remained connected to art lovers from around the world uh, through these classes that I've talked about, through our virtual tours, etc. I, you know, I think clearly the international visitors aren't coming, no, but they are staying involved in all of our virtual lectures. We have a wonderful exhibition called Soutine de Kooning, Conversations in Paint, and we had a lecture uh, by the organizing curator of that uh, when we opened it two and a half weeks ago. We had over 3,000 people sign in. And they were from countries like Panama, Canada, Colombia, England, France, New Zealand. That means we are reaching, in a way, our international mm -hmm. audience and international audience. Maybe some of these people never would have traveled to come to Philadelphia. We really don't know. We don't feel that we're losing our international base at all. We, in fact, feel we're probably expanding it. One other topic that's been very much in the news of late, of course, is deaccessioning. And given all those heightened controversies, would I be right that you're relieved that deaccessioning is not an option for the Barnes by virtue of Dr. Barnes's will? Do I have that right? You do. Yes. <laughs> nope. We do not acquire works of art and we do not deaccession works of art. So there's a whole segment of our museum experience, Max, that you and I had at the Met that I do not have anymore at the Barnes. And I think by nature, that's what the way Dr. Barnes wanted it. And that's why we can spend time thinking a lot about a very robust adult education program, as well as K through 12 education program in a way that other institutions might not have the resources to, and staff resources to think broadly on other issues, because acquiring art is an important part of many museums. It is. It's also such a lightning rod these days in thinking about what museums are for. Are they more focused on collection building that has an advantage in education, or are they less focused on that and more focused on service? And mm -hmm. I'm wondering what conversations you hear in Philadelphia about the topic. I think it's a very healthy dialogue. I think that having that kind of dialogue helps institutions emphasize mm -hmm. and consider their mission yeah. and figure out what their strategic direction should be within the next three to five years. And I do think that there's shifting sands. Even within an institution, you can change 
the way you approach this question and this issue based on what's relevant in the community at the time, what context you're working in, what the emphasis is of the institution at that time. Dr. Barnes's will, in addition to putting you in the condition of not selling and buying, had such an extraordinary vision attached to it in collecting and and thumbing his nose, if I may say, at patrician Philadelphia to some extent. Mm -hmm. He demonstrated a very heartfelt advocacy of racial equality and social justice, helping his African-American employees buy houses in Philadelphia as early as 1917. And he provided scholarships to artists who figured in the Harlem Renaissance in the 20s. How are you manifesting his legacy with respect to that advocacy in today's Barnes Foundation? You know, we're doing it in several ways, several key ways. Obviously, our commitment to the education program, which I've been discussing, is critical. He believed also in having his paintings come down to his factory and have offered education classes to his employees that he taught about art. And so he was, and his employees were, many were African-American and many were women. So education overall, so our commitment to adult education, our commitment to K through 12 programming within the school district of Philadelphia and Camden is deeply rooted and has always existed. So that's one way. Dr. Barnes, by having put into his will the fact that Lincoln University, which is a historically black university and college outside of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. That administration was critical to the ongoing health and actually had seats on the board of the Barnes and still does. And so our commitment and partnership with Lincoln is yet another extension of how we are fulfilling that mission that you're talking about to racial equity and social justice. Also, we have very robust programs in the community. The People's Emergency Center, which is in West Philadelphia, for example, we collaborate with them on a creative initiatives, both on site and in their neighborhoods that we serve. We provide the arts programming with them for both adults and teens and children. And, you know, all this is really to realize our commitment to accessible education, to diversity, inclusion, and social justice. And so creating this vibrant network of local partners, of which we work with also Puentes de Salud, and the public library, we have a program as well. That's very much a part of our mandate now, and our strategic planning for the future is to expand the community engagement program overall. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the other way that we really have demonstrated our commitment to racial equity generally is through our special exhibitions program. And you, I hope, have come to our exhibitions upon occasion. We want to engage art and artists who are represented in our permanent collections, but we also want to place those artists within context and feature artists that sometimes Dr. Barnes overlooked. So many of our exhibitions are show Dr. Barnes's commitment to racial 
equity and social justice, celebrating artists who are black or indigenous or people of color, women, and those who do not have access to formal art education. So we recently had an exhibition on Elijah Pierce, Mm -hmm. Elijah Pierce's America, celebrating a remarkable um, self-taught wood carver. Then Bert Morisot, a woman impressionist. You know, this was an exhibition we did in 2018. It was dedicated to the only woman who exhibited in one in every one of the impressionist exhibitions. And Mohamed Borisa, Urban Riders, an exhibition we did in 2017, in which the artists explored a North Philadelphia community's effort at neighborhood revitalization and youth empowerment. And we have some interesting exhibitions coming up. So it's very much core to our exhibition planning programming to incorporate that broader context yeah. into that. So it's really threefold. And it's interesting given the nature of your collection and at the same time the case you're making to communities of color broadly and succeeding in it, which is a testament to what's possible. Speaking of which, if you were to cite peers that you think of, the institutions that you look to as peers. Could you single out a couple for us? Is it the Phillips Collection? Who are your peers nationally Mm -hmm. that you Mm -hmm. talk to? I think that Phillips for sure. I think Isabella Stewart-Gardner, the Frick, not necessarily in terms of all of the programming, but similarities in our collections and in the history of our collections. And in some cases like Isabella Stewart-Gardner, some of the static natures of our collection the Huntington, maybe. A key one is the Phillips. Phillips is very important. We look to scholarship there. But we actually find, funnily enough, the Barnes actually has resonance in a lot of institutions, and they don't have to mirror or look like the Barnes in size or budget or program or installation, etc. There really are a lot of overlaps. And so it's been very fulfilling to be able to work actively in the museum community, much the way it was always done at the Met. Nina, here's to tourism rejoining your ranks, to the city getting back on its feet as we're all looking for every city. And thank you for making time today. Thank you, Max. It's such a pleasure. We've been speaking today with Nina Diefenbach, Senior Vice President and Deputy Director for Advancement at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.